welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 27, entitled Dream Disposition. Today, we are going to talk about the importance of a student's disposition as they practice and train to be performing artists. We are also going to talk about how we as parents and teachers can guide students into a better disposition and help them understand its importance to their success and happiness. I chose to talk about this today because like many of my episodes, this has been a topic that has popped up in my mind lately, both here at home and also working with teachers in the Teaching Tonic, an online teacher training platform I launched this summer. I've also been fascinated with learning dispositions and mindsets for a very long time. And if you have ever worked with me or met me, you already know that this is true. First, let's discuss why disposition is so important. Like mindset, if the ideal disposition is not achieved before practicing or training, a child is already shortchanging their outcome. For sensitive children, which many talented young artists are in excess, a slight change in mood or the overall vibe in the room can make it so that they cannot access their most intuitive gifts, and they are far less likely to receive or apply new concepts and suggestions. Often parents can influence or maneuver a child's disposition better than anyone because they know their child best. I have seen parents in my studio take a walk with their child or share a funny story or snack in the middle of a tough recording session. And then I've seen the child shift into dream disposition and nail that track. It is a beautiful thing. They have harnessed their ability to help their own child ease back into dream disposition for years. And not just in violin, but likely in many areas of their lives. How a child approaches practice can make a huge difference in disposition, too. If they are approaching a list of things like chores, they won't have an open, creative mind flowing into their work. They are following instructions rather than actively engaging in their own process and devising solutions to complex technical work. As a teacher, I can tell you we want them present, mindful, and on their tippy toes with ideas. It isn't that we don't want them following a teacher's instructions, because believe me, we do. It's that we want them to participate and make the work their own so that they can own the results and be empowered by them, leading them to want to practice more. And while most teachers I know would like students to finish their assignments, what we are truly focused on is the quality of the work. I tend to assign my students more than a few things, It isn't about finishing something necessarily to me most of the time. It is about conditioning them to work in a certain way. It could be working certain muscle groups or helping them find more detail in their work. Maybe it's looking for a more precise sound or style in their playing. I'm not concerned if they don't finish an etude in one week, as long as they present what they have done with pride and show me that they worked mindfully and thoughtfully Much of what I do in lessons feels like gardening, and I wish for practicing to be the same. I'm tending soil, adding nutrients, watering, tilling, trying to make a contribution that will help something grow. These earnest efforts matter in practice, too, much more than a chart with check marks all over it. 
Charting is a great motivator, and it helps us over here to stay on track when there are multiple things to practice. But we have to be careful to not pigeonhole practice into the chore chart. Music and art are more sacred than that, and they are far more useful to a child's emotional well-being and long-term health. I tell my students when the violin hits their shoulder, it should be a switch. They should be tingling with focus, in problem-solver and artist mode at full tilt. There might be nothing else in their life that requires this switch, but it is powerful, and if they tap into it fully, it feels great. So how can parents get their kids moving in this direction toward their dream disposition? Some parents don't realize they've been influencing their child's behavior and disposition from very early on, and that in conservatory training, we are really just talking about a higher level version of the same. Let's look at what we did when they were smaller as parents. We supported our children in their early childhood development, developing learning dispositions through the language we used as we guided and supported them through play, discovery, and learning. When we used language such as, I can see that you are very brave climbing up that slide, or I like how you are listening to your friend. Then we are acknowledging children's behavior and disposition and reaffirming their actions. In this way, a child hears many times during the day what is acceptable, as opposed to what is less so. Most parents I know naturally do this, but we don't see how it will translate into the practice room. When we take the time to acknowledge and help a child to connect their two worlds, real everyday life and the practice room or music studio, we can make a really large impact. What we acknowledge and praise can encourage children to explore, participate, and work freely as they gain confidence in understanding what is appropriate and best for them long-term in their musical education. To do this, parents need to put their own feelings and frustrations often to the side as they focus solely on supporting and maintaining that ideal disposition and mindset of the student. This can be particularly challenging around high-pressure situations like auditions and competitions. And here's some real talk. Certainly a child's development and its telltale turbulent characteristics do not pause while you attempt these disposition maneuvers on musical literature adults even struggle with. So your tween will still be moody and unpredictable. Your teen will shirk responsibility and challenge your knowledge of any of it on a daily basis. You get the drift. I will add too that of course in the practice room or in day-to-day life, We do need to point out undesirable behavior, too, to try and point to a better option. I've had to do this more times than I can count, and even at conservatory when I am officially at work. I've had to parent Ava over being late or not organized for class in front of clients and other students. For me, my worlds are colliding nonstop. Hi, studio parents. Please excuse me while I parent for a few minutes. Don't mind me, right? At least I feel I'm in good company. But with my children and with my students, pointing out the positive tends to go a lot farther and moves us ahead a lot quicker, too. I try hard to remember this. If you see your child in or out of the practice room exhibiting any of the dispositions I will list in this podcast, tell them you notice and that you think it is the best thing you've seen all day. That goes a long way, and it will make having to influence or maneuver them far less work for you.
Yesterday, I heard another parent say in day-to-day frustration, it costs you nothing to be kind and polite, so please do it. And I thought to myself, that's an interesting way of saying that, and it's true. It takes the same amount or near the same amount of energy to be rude as it does to be polite in terms of words and how we string them together. This is an easy correction then for most generally compliant children to make. Then there's the beautiful quick spin-off of having said lovely words, smiles, happiness, and a sense of having pleased someone. These things will all serve to help remind a child to mind their P's and Q's over time. But here's the thing. In this day-to-day scenario, the wrong behavior and the right behavior weigh just about as much in effort and time. And the end result comes quickly and can serve as a motivator to do it again and form good habits. The same could be said about sharing or helping a classmate with something. It may take slightly more energy to make that choice than the other option, but physically, it isn't much more energy and it also doesn't take much time off of the clock. And the social rewards are quick to appear. But now let's move into the practice room. Things are a bit more complex there, kind of like a jungle of emotions. The better disposition or behavior we need actually tends to be far harder to achieve, and it takes far more time. So it does cost something. And the results that could help remotivate them are hard to come by, and we don't know when we will see them. We are asking children to essentially make a better choice, which is harder, takes more time, and doesn't guarantee a better outcome anytime soon. When I put it like that, it sounds pretty unreasonable, doesn't it? But it also helps us to empathize with children if we realize the magnitude of what we are asking. It can soften our approach to realize this, which is sometimes exactly what they need to pivot into a better state. And it also deepens our resolve to keep trying with them. Because if you're listening to this, you are likely in this for the long haul now. And while maneuvering or steering a child away from a poor disposition or mindset and into a better one can feel like a part-time job, the benefits are worth the effort, especially for children with big dreams. And those benefits will last a lifetime and have a huge impact on other parts of a child's life too. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of this. If you Google learning dispositions, you will get a variety of results, but I'm going to stick to my top 10 that I think are crucial to young artists and their development, and I'm going to try to detail how I think we can foster them both in and out of the studio. As usual, I will wear my many hats to show all perspectives from parent, teacher, studio mom, performer. Certainly, the earlier we approach these with children across the board in day-to-day life, the better. But in my opinion, it's never too late to improve things along the way. Put together and used in the appropriate situations, learning dispositions allow young people to fully engage with naughty intellectual problems and cope with what is undoubtedly challenging circumstances in high-level learning atmospheres. Here's the first learning disposition I want to talk about today. Being open-minded. A student with this learning disposition is open to getting new ideas. They're accepting of ideas and opinions of others. They're willing to explore alternative views and also have an alertness to narrow thinking so that they can avoid it for themselves. 
In addition to this, they seem to have a continuous ability to generate multiple options while they're striving for something. So how do we foster this learning disposition? In the studio, ideally a parent should encourage exploring new ways of accomplishing things, both musically and technically. Be curious with your child and articulate excitement over trying something new rather than fear or doubt. If a new approach works, engage with your child in how they can use this new skill in other pieces. How about at home? Surround them with people who are open to other people's ideas and opinions while being confident in their own beliefs. These are forever learners, and they are modeling what leads to greater levels of achievement across the board. Take the time to point out the myriad of choices being made in music making around them. Tempo, style, artistic choices around vibrato and rubato. Ask them what they appreciate in each player's choices in the music that they're listening to. Acknowledge and discuss openly different choices people are making all around them in life. Food choices, choices in clothing, even modes of transportation or living. Be confident but adventurous in the choices you're making in your family. Take the road less traveled occasionally. Travel differently. Choose a new restaurant. Try new hobbies or explore new cultures together. Be broad and open-minded in your daily lives together as much as your family schedule will allow. Now for our second disposition, being flexible. A student who's flexible is able to switch perspectives when looking at a problem. A student like this is willing to adapt to a new plan or change course fluidly in order to get to a different outcome. How do we foster this in the studio? When current methods aren't working to yield a technical breakthrough, a new way must be forged. Perhaps they have achieved a skill set, but it would be easier approached from another angle. A flexible student can take a step back and reapproach with a fresh mind. This can allow them to reach greater heights. In another scenario, maybe they agreed to a fingering or a bowing thinking it would yield a certain amount of projection or give way to a beautiful phrase, but it just isn't working out. Especially when you add accompaniment, this might happen. A flexible student will gladly rework a section with new fingerings and bowings and forge a new path to success. Welcome new plans and strategies in music lessons. Be open to them sounding rough around the edges for a bit to turn a new corner. Growing pains are just as real on their instruments, and sometimes to get over a technical hurdle, there will be undesirable sounds along the way. Instead of being reactive to this as a parent, be encouraging and stay on the peripheral, offering support in whatever way is requested. Sometimes just asking if there's anything you can do to help is a much-needed gesture in a young artist's life. Often when I ask Ava this, she doesn't ask me to come practice alongside her or to give her a better plan, but she might just ask for a snack. And I can do that. When frustrations run deep, you don't need to feel responsible to fix them, but you do need to be available to support and lend an ear. How do we model this more at home in our day-to-day lives? Model the behavior of someone who is willing to tear something down a bit to rebuild it properly. This could be a recipe gone wrong or a home repair. Teach them through example that sometimes you need to take a step back and reapproach. Notice if they do this for a school project or another hobby. Perhaps they had to redo their science experiment or rewrite a paper twice. 
We've all had to rip something up and put it back together again. Take the time to acknowledge when they are exhibiting this characteristic and strength of character elsewhere, because in the practice room, it will be even harder. It's harder because they want the outcome even more in there, and their overall investment is larger. We need to find it first in an easier circumstance so that they can know the power of making the stronger choice. Now for my third disposition. How about a brave but savvy risk taker? This student is not afraid of making mistakes and sees it as a source of information. Student is willing to take on new challenges and disrupt levels of current achievement to reach no heights later. They are comfortable with building blocks. How can we foster this in the studio? A student who is not afraid of risks will strive harder for a beautiful phrase or harder technique, even if it means intonation takes a temporary hit or that they have to rework other details like fingerings or bow choreography. They trust that it will all work out eventually and they set their sights on the higher goal, which is music making. This student might write their own cadenzas or actually make the music that they're looking at harder by adding a higher level of challenge to an already difficult passage. They'll do it even if it temporarily makes them sound bad. They have vision. It is risky to add vibrato to a group of tenths, but if they see the value in the outcome, they will take that risk even in a first performance and confront it head on. They are brave in their choices while remaining smart to avoid catastrophe. Some might mistake this for being impulsive, but in fact, they are comfortable with going right for what they want. Parents need to allow for these risks to be taken, knowing that there may be mistakes along the way. Even if the parent would rather they play it safe to hit all the technical points perfectly, the student who is comfortable taking calculated risks has a higher long-term potential as a performer. And this needs to be the thing we focus on most. Ultimately, you want them to play fearlessly and to receive the training that will facilitate this. Often, convincing a child to be this brave is near impossible. So if your child is already this way, they are ahead of the pack. So embrace this learning disposition and know that as their technique develops and refines, this trait will serve them above all others. On to our fourth disposition. This one is the disposition to clarify and seek understanding. This student has a desire to understand clearly, to seek connections and explanations and they have an alertness to unclarity and a need for focus. They also have the ability to build conceptualizations. What does this look like in the studio? A student who has the ability to harness this learning disposition is a wonderful thing to watch. So often we are teaching very advanced concepts to children who have not yet reached that level of science or math in school, but they can still form a connection, understand an analogy, or seek out a clearer understanding of what you are asking their body to achieve. Being able to assess that there is a lack of clarity and then to go seeking a better understanding is a mature move for a young student to make, but one they will do often if the rewards are great enough. Sometimes the right piece of music will inspire this yearning to truly understand the ins and outs of a technique or a style of playing. A parent can help this process 
by engaging in the mental search to find the analogy with the teacher that will work best. Help them find the connection to the motion of vibrato, the arc of the bow, the feeling of playing a beautiful solo pianissimo. The list goes on. You know your child, and this brainstorm can be a very fruitful investment. It bonds you with your child and helps them form a deeper understanding to a concept that otherwise might remain over their heads. And most kids enjoy the mental stretch and what it feels like when they find it. Frequently, Ava will start a sentence like, So it's like what it would feel like if I were to... in a lesson. Sometimes it feels like she is off on a tangent, but actually she's striving to connect. I've learned to sit back and allow her the space and time to express that possible connection, and it has been a wonderful bonding experience for us. Frequently, the analogy she comes up with is wrapped in a memory of joy or happiness And this goes a long way with her disposition in general. So it is definitely a win-win to hear what she has to say. How can we foster this at home? Recently, I have witnessed this learning disposition in my own children being honed by playing strategic board games like Scrabble and Boggle. It took them a while, but eventually they weren't just looking for words, but they were strategizing, hoarding letters, making multi-tiered moves, able to explain their thinking. To get there, they watched us play and asked a lot of questions. They learned quickly that if they let one round of letters go by unfocused, it could wreck their score. And I saw them stretching their brains to plan moves ahead and understand the rules at a deeper, more strategic level. They liked the way it felt to be in this state of focus and thinking. Making connections and breaking things down is something we can do more out loud in front of kids, and it helps them think at a higher level. Especially as as we are all at home right now, I find my kids asking what I'm doing all the time. Frequently, the answer I find myself giving, though, is that I am reworking something like an email I think could flow better or an instruction to a student that isn't clear enough. It is important that we allow our kids to witness critical thinking, even if it is on a subject they don't know anything about. They need to see what a person looks like when the wheels are churning and the satisfaction it brings when we take the time necessary to get things done well. Let's move on to number five, a ubiquitous learner. This student will think, learn, and create anywhere, anytime. This type of learner is wonderful in competition on travel or on the go with family during vacations and trips. They can create a good practice space anywhere, and they have the ability to adapt to new environments seamlessly. How do we foster this disposition? This disposition, I think, is born in part from experience. For some, it might be from taking the violin with them when they're away and not just seeing it as time off. Travel and competing go hand in hand, so building this adaptability is crucial for kids who by nature spend tons of time at home in the same space for practice. It could mean studying score on a plane or train. It might mean staying with a host family and being comfortable with them, hearing actual practice as opposed to a mock concert. I think the same disposition applies for being able to learn or find traction in learning at different times of the day. While we have a set schedule for practice some days, I like to mix it up on other days, and I think this is a wonderful thing. 
because concerts and auditions will happen in different time zones at different times, and we need to have young players ready to hit the mark when needed. It also protects young artists from missing out on life and saying no to plans that could be beautiful for their spirits or key relationships if they learn to believe they can practice at different times and in different places. On to our sixth learning disposition. This one is about being reflective. Students will reflect on their thinking, actions, and learning when they are reflective. Students with this disposition will ask themselves the following. How did we achieve this best the last time? How can we recreate this success right now? Where have we seen a similar problem before? Did we ever take an unnecessary detour in a previous encounter with this? How can we avoid that misstep now? How do we foster this trait in our children? Again, talking out loud about our own day-to-day decisions models reflective behavior. It might sound like this. Well, this Sunday, we're going to allow more time for parking because I don't know whether you remember, but last time the search for parking took longer than I thought, and then it made us late and anxious. I think it's important to include how a decision gone wrong made us feel so that they can connect that in their own way. In my example, it isn't just that we were late for church, but that it made us feel anxious, and nobody likes to feel that. Even when things go well, a pregame talk is also useful. After successful concerts, Ava will sit in wonderment with me, and we will say, wow, we really hit it out of the park today. It feels great. I wonder how we got that to happen. Let's look at what we ate, how much sleep we got, what we were doing before we left the house, the whole week prior to it. We did a great job, and I want us to have that fabulous feeling over and over. We have also walked home from a concert where there was a memory lapse and talked about things we could have done better that day leading up to those moments. Frequently, we feel really confident about the practice leading up, covering all those bases. But even then, sometimes she will admit she could have focused more on one thing or another. Once, while puzzling over a rocky audition, she quietly told us she thought she knew what went wrong and that she had stayed up reading the night before, but that she would never do it again. We hugged and told her we were glad she could puzzle it all out with us. This is all part of learning how to be reflective and take responsibility for your part in the process and its outcome. And as a parent, if I feel I botched something the day of in any way, I am sure to bring this up. It's an open dialogue for everyone. If I got agitated while driving and raised the stress level of everybody in the car on the way to the audition, I'll say so. If I left late, gave her too many reminders attached to a negative, or waited until the morning of to print out applications or music, which prevents me from being able to be truly present with her, I'll say so. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? I just apologize and model what accountability looks like. There are more concerts and auditions coming, and we're on a team together to help her reach her goals. Okay, here's number seven. Learning disposition number seven is to be patient and persistent. A student who's willing to spend extra time and effort and doesn't give up easily when faced with difficulties. This student remains clinical. How can we sponsor this in a studio? 
A student like this will be willing to do a deep lunge of work that is clearly a longer hurdle than normal. They approach from multiple angles, face failure, feel setbacks, and still keep going. They are also able to separate their self-worth or potential as a future performer from their process. This is what I call remaining clinical. I actually used to have a sign in my studio that read, Remain Clinical. This learning disposition involves grit paired with the choice to try harder and longer. That choice is a hard one to make for some kids. It's a far harder sell than other choices we ask them to make on a regular basis, and I think it's wise for parents to acknowledge this going in. With music, being patient and persistent has no definite end date. A school assignment might take forever in their minds, but there's a set deadline and it will get done before too long. For some children, there's a lot of anxiety around how long will I be doing this? When am I going to feel something other than this frustration and feeling of dissatisfaction all around me? These are valid feelings. And the truth is they deserve a lot of support, verbal and nonverbal, to bolster them through these processes. For younger students, I have sand timers to allow them the option to choose how long they can stay mindful and patient in a practice process with me. It helps them discover their limits and respect their bodies when they are tired or overwhelmed. Some kids will surprise you and pick the 10-minute timer, and it motivates them to try harder, just knowing there's a clear end in sight. I also allow students to choose from a selection of exercises to remove the sense of someone telling them what to do repeatedly because this tends to give them the feeling of doing chores. If they choose an exercise for themselves or even the order in which they do a few exercises, they're in the driver's seat somewhat and this removes some tension in practice and in the studio. As with most teachers, I have multiple etudes and exercises to strengthen every skill set, so I'm happy to even demonstrate them so a child can choose their remedy, so to speak. Here's the menu. This immediately changes the disposition of a child in many cases, and parents can do this at home by having a few short exercises assigned by teachers and allowing a child to choose. We even have a giant wheel in our house with choices that we can use, spin it, and win it. We also use charts and bead counters for things on our practice list that require the most patience and persistence. The chart will instruct us what we need to do based on what we did in previous days, and this gives a child direction without it coming from the parent. Most of my younger students dread repetitions, but they don't mind bead counters, so sometimes a tool can help ease the mental or emotional burden of an exercise. All of these are to adjust disposition. I have a few warm-up routines Ava uses regularly, and she generally will choose how she would like to start a session. This puts her in the driver's seat and positions me in a support role. It's funny how these tiny adjustments in who does what can impact a young player's mood and disposition, but once you experience it, you never go back. If all of the choices you are offering are good ones, you can't really go wrong. It just reminds them that they are still the captain of their own ship, and with so much out of their control, this can feel like a welcome change to them. I include incentives in our practice at home and also for my students. 
They may seem like simple incentives, like a pizza party at home or watching a movie together later. But sometimes we need to show that we understand the mountain we're asking them to climb by offering them a canteen every so often. Remember, too, that most kids have no idea what they are in for when they start a piece or what kind of time commitment they are signing up for. Parents don't know either most of the time. That's pretty unfair when you think about it. I'm sure Ava had no idea how many hours or how much frustration she would endure to perform the Pagnini Caprice Number no. 5. She went in not knowing, and she had several layers of semi-rude awakenings along the way as she realized what a beast it was. Teachers will have a fairly clear idea, but because students are so different, that too can shift somewhat. In fact, as a teacher, I try hard not to give a student a preconceived idea of how hard something is. I want them to approach something from a pure place because so many times I have had a student surprise me and learn something with no trouble where other students have struggled big time. There are complex emotions involved with a child being patient and persistent in their musical education. Doing things as instructed for a long period of time is, in fact, a lot harder than not. It requires more focus and, in most cases, is far more time-consuming. Practicing slower takes a significant amount more energy, patience, and time. And here's the thing. I know I mentioned it briefly earlier in the podcast, but I think it bears repeating. If said child does put themselves through the motions of doing things as they should, harnesses their ability to be patient, staves off frustration, and practices as instructed, their reward awaits them for sure in cleaner playing and a better overall outcome. But how long before said results will appear? Sometimes as if a poof out of nowhere. The truth is the amount of time could be different for every child, and it is hard to predict. So they are expected to do right for an undetermined amount of time with just verbal affirmations from us and persist until the real results arrive. Do you know many adults who can do this? Most adults would demand a timeline, ask for historical references, request statistical reassurance that their investment in time and energy was destined to give them the results they seek. This is where grit is needed, and some of us come by that more naturally than others. That might be another podcast. But I will tell you a story to try and illustrate it briefly. When I first started dating my husband, I thought he must think dating a violinist would be very exciting. I mean, look at the closet of gowns and the stages and lights and traveling going on. This was a passionate field, and he was eager to understand what I did all day before meeting for dinner. I remember him leaning forward at the table and saying, tell me about your day. How's practice going? I'm so excited about your concert in a few months. And I thought, hmm... This is really a pivotal moment in my relationship with him, I guess. But the truth is, my day-to-day life is pretty boring. So I said, really? There's nothing uh, going on that much, just a lot of repetition. I'm just working through the piece, but I'm also looking forward to the concert. He looked puzzled and said, don't be modest. I bet it's exciting getting ready for the events. And I said, no, 
that actually I'd hit a bit of a brick wall with a few things and that I was backing up again and reworking, so it was feeling a little muddy and tedious. Cue the crickets, right? How romantic. I honestly feel sorry for him looking back on this. Then, about a week later, I can't even believe he did it, but he actually braved the water again and said, So tell me about your day. How was... And I interrupted him. I was so excited and happy. I was actually beaming all over that night. Why? Because finally, for the first time after months, I had reached my full tempo by memory of the Barber Concerto Third Movement. It took me forever to get to this. And I had had many failed attempts, reapproaches, pulled sections apart, refingered, reorganized, you name it. I had done it, but this was the day it came together. The day I had been waiting for, after months of nothing but practice. And the best part of this story, I think that might have been one of the first moments my husband truly saw me. And that felt amazing. I'm sharing that story because it is what we need to do for the kids when they are in the thick of training with no progress guaranteed or on the calendar. We need to see them, admire them, and hold them up for the tiny heroes they are for being willing to do this. Most kids around them won't, and that is what makes them so special. I hope today's podcast serves many and sparks some new conversations about disposition of learning in private studios, institutions, and at home with our young artists in practice. This is a subject very dear to my heart and one which I think deserves ample time in music education everywhere. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. I'm back to email this week. So if you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect.